Well, thank you so much for leading us in worship, guys, and um, it was so beautiful, and it was really a blessing to pour our hearts out to the Lord, so hope you were blessed there too. Do, do me a favor and uh, turn with me to the 11th chapter of 2 Kings, the 11th chapter of 2 Kings. Now, you're never going to understand this chapter unless you understand the players, <laughs> and there's a lot of players in this chapter. Uh, but if we do uh, drill down and figure out who these people are or uh, get a general understanding of who these people are, we're going to be really blessed in what the Lord has put forth and, and uh, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 2 Kings chapter 11. Now, I'll tell you this again because I've been telling you all throughout this um, uh, series or this uh, uh, traveling through the book of Kings is that in 931 B.C., the kingdom of Israel divided. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the ten tribes, the ten northern tribes, and the two southern tribes of Judah, Benjamin and Judah. And so we've been for several uh, uh, weeks or even months now tracing the kings of Israel, the northern tribe, and the kings of Judah, the southern tribe. And this week we get back to the southern tribe of Judah. This takes place in about 841 B.C., so we've almost traveled 90 years or so in the life of these kings, in the life of the divided kingdom. So let me just read uh, the first couple verses, and let's see if we can get down who these people are. Starting in verse 1, chapter 11. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead. She arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. But Jehoshabah, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, I told you there's a lot of them, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons, who were being murdered. And they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah so that he was not killed. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. And so I was kidding with my family last night and asking them to name all the male kings or, yeah, all the male kings of Judah and how many there were and uh, uh, what I was trying to get them uh, on or to, to fool them on a little bit is Athaliah is not a man. She's a lady. Athaliah, who is this person? Well, she's the mother of Ahaziah. <laughs> Ahaziah was the previous king. Uh, Ahaziah was uh, born of uh, Jehoram, and before him, Jehoshaphat. And so uh, we have um, uh, this uh, queen, Athaliah. Athaliah actually married, listen to this now, Jehoram at the father's request, Jehoshaphat. So I know I'm uh, uh, giving you a lot of names, but here's what I've been preaching to all of you over the last several months. Either find a list online or write a list down uh, yourself of all the kings of Israel and all the kings of Judah. And the reason is, is because this story would make a lot more sense if you know who these folks are. Well, listen to this. In Judah, 
the southern kingdom, there's a king called Jehoshaphat who reigns from 870 to 848. And his son, Jehoram, came on the throne in 848 to 841, and he married this gal named Athaliah. Now, who was Athaliah? She came from the northern kingdom. Her mother and father were the evil king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel. And they worshipped the Baals. They worshipped Baal and sought after other gods. You remember this. And so during Jehoram's time as king, he marries this Athaliah who introduces these things into the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember, these are things that are spelled out in the uh, Ten Commandments and are against God's standard and law to worship other gods. And so Jehoram marries this Athaliah, and they have a son named Ahaziah. And in the last few weeks that we've been traveling on Wednesdays, we saw that a king named Jehu, a northern king, actually killed Ahaziah. He killed Ahaziah. He, that happened in 2 Kings 9, 27 through 29. And so now you have all of these players. And let's look at the verses again. When Athaliah, remember, she's the daughter of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, she's the mother of Ahaziah because she married Jehoram, a southern king. Follow with me. She saw that her son was dead. So what did she do? The writer tells you here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. She arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. And who would those royal heirs have been? Her grandchildren. She killed her grandchildren. She murdered them in cold blood. Why? To solidify her grip upon the throne. You see how evil uh, this religion and this family had become and I hardly even have to do any exposition on how you tr we train up our children and what they see in us and what they follow in us and how they mimic us. And here, Athaliah mimicked and did the same things that her mom and dad did, evil Queen Jezebel and evil King Ahab. And here, just because of greed and pride and ambition and this uh, thirst to have control of the monarchy in Judah, she kills all of the royal heirs, including her grandchildren. But, verse 2, Jehoshabah, the daughter of King Joram. That means, listen, most people believe that this Jehoshabah is the sister of Athaliah. Are you catching me? She's the sister of Athaliah. Jehoshabah, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash. I know it says there, sister of Ahaziah. But many believe these are ways in which the ancients spoke. And when they look back at who this person was, most commentators believe this Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, was actually a sister of Athaliah. I'm not saying that wrong. And so that would make her the aunt 
of the primary figure of this story, and that's a boy named Joash. You see, there was one boy who was young, one uh, grandson who was saved. He was saved by Jehoshaba. How he was saved? The sister uh, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, so he escaped the murder of Athaliah. A lot of words. We're going to get past it here in a minute, but just hang in there. He escaped the murderous uh, uh, events that Athaliah conducted, and Jehoshaba boldly and courageously takes Joash and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered, and they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom. Josephus actually has some information, extra-biblical account, that he actually hid for a long time in a, like a closet where the mattresses mattresses and beds were held. So this was a, a real hiding and a, 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 a serious and significant thing uh, and, you know, drastic thing that uh, Jehoshaphat did. Well, stole him away who were being murdered and hid him and his nurse in the bedroom. Who from? From Athaliah because she was trying to get her grip on the kingdom of Judah, the monarchy, so that he was not killed. Now circle that uh, little phrase, so he was not killed. We'll come back to it at the end of our talk here tonight, our teaching. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. That's the end of verse 3. Now in the seventh year, Jehoiada, in the seventh year, Jehoiada, uh, sent and brought the captains of hundreds of the bodyguards and the escorts and brought them into the house of the Lord to him. And he made a covenant with them and took an oath from them in the house of the Lord and, he, and showed them the king's son. Then he commanded them saying, this is what you shall do. One third of you come on duty on the Sabbath. Uh, or, yes, one third of you who come on duty on the Sabbath shall be keeping watch over the king's health. Verse 6. One-third shall be at the gate of Sewer, and one-third in the gate behind the escorts. And you shall keep watch of the house, lest it be broken down. And the two contingents, verse 7, of you who go off duty on the Sabbath, shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord for the king. But you shall surround the king on all sides, every man with his weapons in his hands. And whoever comes within range, let him be put to death. You are to be with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. Now you see what's happening here? Uh, there's another person introduced to us, Jehoiada. Second Chronicles, by the way, tells us that this Jehoiada, the priest, the man of God, was actually married to Jehoshaba, the one who hid uh, uh, Joash for these six years. Now, why is this, by, or this story in the Bible? Why is this here? What's, what's going on here? Why, why is this so important for the writer? under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Well, here's why it's so important. Because you must remember, and if you don't know this, write this down. God promised David an eternal throne, an everlasting kingdom, one that would never end. And in 2 Samuel, you, or excuse me, you can see it in 2 Samuel 7.16. Uh, it says there, And your house and your kingdom speaking to David, shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And that's an eternal covenant with the house of David. Now, why is that so important? Because if you turn 
to the lineage of Jesus Christ in the first chapter of Matthew, guess who came from the house of David? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus comes from the house of David. And so, even in this book, 2 Kings, in chapter 8, verse 19, if you want to even turn there, Ahaziah of Judah is killed. We've been talking about that. Ahaziah is killed. That allowed Athaliah to come to the throne. But watch what's said here. Uh, oh, excuse me, excuse me. I'm, I'm not in the right chapter. Jehoram is actually reigning. I'm sorry. Jehoram is actually reigning in Judah. Jehoram is reigning in Judah, and he marries Athaliah. And we see in verse 16 of chapter 8, that the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. So here we go. Jehoram, the one before Ahaziah, who next was Athaliah, he's reigning in Judah. Listen to what happens in verse 17. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. In other words, he walked in an evil way. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. Yes, Athaliah was his wife. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And here's what I want you to know. Why is this so important, this chapter 11 that we're talking about? Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah. Why? For the sake of his servant David, as he promised to give him or give a lamp to him and his sons for other ever. That's another way of saying 2 Samuel 7 is something that the Lord remembers. Now, we've been talking about uh, all these things that have been happening in the Old Testament as we've been going through the Old Testament. And if we look in Corinthians and in Romans, we see that the Old Testament, of course, is history. It is history. It actually happened. But also, these stories that are set forth in the Old Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are set there as types and shadows of things to come. And one of the things that you see here, just by the very fact that the Lord is preserving the dynasty of David, or the line of David, of which this little boy, Joash, is. Joash comes through the line of David. The northern kingdom, no. The southern kingdom, yes. And here we see an attack by the evil king and queen, or at least uh, uh, their offspring, Athaliah, against the house of David. That's why this is so important. And this tells you something. And it tells me something as a type and shadow of something that's true for us in the New Testament. And that's this. God's promises never fail. They always come to pass through 90 years or a hundred years, or two hundred years, or three hundred years, through evil and men's wicked choices, God's promises come to pass. But then it tells you something else. Not only do God's promises come to pass, but have you ever thought of it in this way? God's committed to his promises. And that should make you feel like a million bucks. God's committed to his promises. 
Well, look, I, I began this by telling you these are types and shadows of something that's true of us. This side of the cross, under the blood of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, listen to this. Listen to these promises. And remember that God is committed to them in your life. You ready? How about this one? God gives salvation to those who surrender their lives to his son, Romans 1. This free gift of God's salvation, you're saved from eternal separation from God and saved unto eternal communion or fellowship with God. You see it? God not only promises that, he's committed to it. How about this one? He says that he'll work for those who are in Christ in Romans 8.28. He says he'll work out everything, all circumstances, all the things that go wrong, quote-unquote, according to us. He works out for good. God promises to work out for good all things for his children, Romans 8.28, and he's committed to it. He orchestrates it in your life. The things that we think come down uh, uh, the way towards us or come towards us and we are down about them and upset about them, God's using those things and he's committed to doing it because he promised he would do it in your life and bring out good from it. Isn't that beautiful? How about this one? He promises comforts or comfort in our trials, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Do you believe that? He's committed in your trials, your tribulations, your sorrows to comfort us, to comfort us in our trials. He's promised new life in Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.17, not making a person better, but giving us new life, new life in him. Isn't that beautiful? He's committed to it. He's promised every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places in Ephesians 1. He's he's promised us an inheritance that's reserved for us in 1 Peter 1, 4. Here's one that I hope you love. I love it because I'm, you know, I mess up still, and maybe so do you. And I sin against the Lord, and thank goodness for his mercy and grace, and he's Uh, forgiven me at the cross. But this one, in Philippians, it tells us that he'll finish all the work, all the work that he started in you. And it's not just the promise. It is the promise, and that's good enough, but he's committed to the promise. And the Bible tells us that he's the God, or a God, or he's God who cannot lie. He can't lie. It's only truth. He promises peace when we pray. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and he's committed to that. He promises to supply every need in Matthew 6 and Philippians 4. How about these? How about these promises? Jesus promises us rest. Rest. Listen, in the midst of this trial we're going through right now, this virus that's uh, sweeping um, uh, through uh, our country and uh, has shut down our country and our country's shut down, guess what one of the things he is saying to us? It's okay to rest. You don't have to have everything on the schedule. You can be together with your family. You can worship together and have family time and love one another and lift up my name in the midst, and you can rest. But you know what? The best and greatest is that he is our rest, Jesus Christ. He's our rest. If you'll come to in him in a 
a busy schedule or a not busy schedule or a hectic schedule or an uh, anxiety-filled schedule, guess what? He promised that he'll give you rest if you'll just yoke up with him. And he's committed to that. He's promised us power from on high by the, inspir- or by, the, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and filling of the Holy Spirit. He's promised us that. Do we believe it? And here's one I don't want you to miss. Two more, and I'll stop. I love this one. Have you ever thought of this as a promise? He says that if we'll cast all our cares upon him, we can do that because he cares for you. The promise is, is that I can take it, the Lord says. Give me what you have. Why? Because I promise. What do you ask the one you're about ready to marry or you're engaged to? Do you care for me? I want to know that you care for me and I care for you. And the Lord says he gives you uh, this ability to cast your cares upon him because he cares. It's so beautiful. He cares right now. It's a promise and he's committed to the promise. Here's the last one. There's several more, but these are just the ones I picked. Jesus Christ is returning for us. John 14, 2 through 3. Jesus Christ is is returning for us, his bride, and he's committed to this. Now, we believe, right, that the rapture could happen at any time, that there'd be a, a seven-year period of tribulation in which uh, there's going to be an antichrist, and in the middle of that, the antichrist is going to set some sort of, uh, uh, do, or at the beginning there, he's going to set and uh, solve some sort of Mideast peace crisis, and he's going to set himself up on the temple, uh, in, in the temple, and declare that we worship him, and then uh, there's going to be more tribulation, and at the end of the tribulation, just a thumbnail sketch of eschatology, the Lord Jesus is going to come back and rule and reign with his saints in judgment and then establish a thousand years of peace. And at the end of that time, he'll uh, defeat the, his enemies and will have new heavens and new earth. And that's a thumbnail sketch of eschatology, and it's true. He's returning for us, and he's committed to it. Wow. And so we see that here, even in these promises, that uh, uh, God is going to protect the line of David. You see how fierce he is to protect. You have evil sweep in, this evil family led by Athaliah here in chapter 11, and she doesn't want anyone other than her uh, family or her line or her herself because she's killing even people from her family. And they hide away this young boy, this young man, Joash, who's only seven or so years old when he comes to rule and reign as he's crowned king of Judah. Well, listen to what uh, happens in verse 9, and we'll read up until verse 12, and we'll revisit that a little bit. So the captain of the hundreds, verse 9, did according to all that Jehoiada, the priest, commanded. Each of them took his men who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada, the priest. And the priest gave the captains of hundreds the spears and shields which had belonged to King David that were in the temple of the Lord. 
Then the escorts stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, all around the king from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple by the altar in the house. And he brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, and gave him the testimony. And they made him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. Now, I want to focus here for a minute. Or let me just tell you, first of all, what's happening. What's happening here? Well, Jehoiada, the godly priest, is setting up the guards who are guarding the temple. Now, remember, there's two prominent places here we need to think about. The king's palace and the temple. Right? And now uh, this little one has been, Joash, has been hidden by Jehoiada and Jehoshaba in the temple. And so uh, Jehoiada, who has control over the guards in the temple, is setting it up so that when they change shifts on the Sabbath, when people don't work, that there will be an element of surprise, and they'll bring Joash in, and he'll be crowned king instead of Athaliah. I want to focus on something here in verse 10, something that may not have caught your eye, but I hope it does for here evermore. And the priest, verse 10, gave the captains of hundreds the spears and shields which had belonged to King David. I want you to think about that now. Where are they? That's why I went through that just now. Where are they? They're in the temple. They're in the temple place. Now, you can see this a little bit with David and Goliath. What are they talking about right here? You can see it a little bit with David and Goliath. Uh, David, as you know, didn't use a sword to slay Goliath. What did he use? He used the smooth, I think, five smooth stones. But what did he do with Goliath's head? He cut it off with his own sword. Remember this? And there's been much debate about where uh, uh, David, or excuse me, Goliath's sword was, but later on, when David is being pursued by his uh, father-in-law, the king, Saul, he runs to uh, uh, the temple area where this priest is, and he, the, the priest says, oh, David, you're going to need a sword. And he goes back into the official places where the things are kept, and guess what he brings out? Goliath's sword. So apparently, listen to this, when David and others in Israel were winning victories, oftentimes, catch it, they would hang things or they would put things in the temple that reminded them of what? Victories in difficulty, big-time victories, Big victories, little victories. Why do I say that? Because there were enough things here, spears and shield for hundreds, which had belonged to King David. And as we know, King David went around and was a great warrior and had many victories, and he put the stuff in the temple. That's so interesting. Why? Why did he put the stuff in the temple? Well, again, to remind uh, the people and him what? that these were God's victories. It's very tempting, folks, walking as a Christian when we do stuff and we think something's a victory to start thinking to ourselves, wow, how wonderful I am, when really, what are we called to do? We're called to ascribe all glory and thanksgiving unto the Lord, aren't we? Here, I just have a couple New Testament verses 
Colossians 4.2 says, continue earnestly in prayer, but be vigilant in it with thanksgiving, giving thanks and glory unto the Lord. Rejoice always, 1 Thessalonians 5 says, pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's important that we know who wins the victories. Now listen, here's something else I want you to catch from this verse 10. There... In the Christian life, remember, I'm telling you that these are types and shadows of something, of, of, of a principle or uh, something uh, this side of the, uh, the cross. And here, we've been studying for the last several months up until two weeks ago, the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is about the supremacy of Christ, and then our response to that is faith. And Hebrews 11 is a famous chapter on faith. And we examined faith. And what is faith? Faith, trust, and dependence. It's not, um, uh, he doesn't just uh, uh, give us great lengthy definitions of what faith is. He does give us a great definition uh, of what faith is. Uh, Hoping in the things that we can't see, it's evidence right? We talked about the evidence. You can go there in Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, but then he gives the lives of these people and shows the lives of the Old Testament saints and what they did which exhibited faith. That's beautiful. And he's still doing it now with us. And the Bible says that we come into the family of God by faith, by grace we've been saved through faith. We grow and live the Christian life by faith, And all that we do, the Bible says, anything that's outside of faith is sin. That's what the Bible says. The Bible also says, faith is what pleases God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But with faith, that's what pleases him. In fact, our Lord and Savior had a parable of healing ten lepers. And only one came back to give thanks. And the... um, Uh, the lesson there was always giving thanks unto the Lord. But I want you to see something. Whether we're putting up... So so, so here, how do we as New Testament Christians, spirit-filled Christians, what does this have to do for us? Well, listen, you're the temple of God. I'm the temple of God. We're to live by faith. And we, listen to this, are to continually be putting trophies of the Lord's victories in our life. Now, I do it through a a process that some don't like to do, but maybe we should. And I journal, and I write them down, and I remind myself because I'm so fickle of all the things that the Lord has done. God's big on memorials. Remembering is a big part of faith. And so the Lord is asking us, I think, to install in our lives things that help us with our faith, our dependence, our growth, our living We're putting them up on the walls of the temple. We're putting them all around the walls of the temple. What am I talking about? Well, it's things that we remember. It's uh, his exploits of his grace, his his mercy, his his wonderful things that he's done, his deeds. And we remember them, and they're there, and they're to remind us. Well, listen, folks, we do it here in the church. We have juice 
and cracker, and it's communion, and it's a memorial, it's a remembering of all the things that the Lord has accomplished and all the things that he's going to do. We do baptisms, and it's a remembering and a recognition of what Christ has done in a person's life so that others can see it, and we put it around the church so that others can see and, and understand. It's as if we're putting up these trophies or these remembrances so that we'll remember. And I encourage you to do that all around your life, whatever it is. Now, I'm going to give you another thing to think about. Not only do I think the Lord's calling us to put these things into our lives, the temple of the Holy Spirit now, check this out. In times like these, COVID-19, anxiety, depression, melancholy, a feeling alone, uh, just, you know, stir crazy because I can't get out and get, look, look, look at this. I believe the Lord is calling us to bring those trophies down from the walls of the temple and to examine them and remember them. What do I mean? Turn with me to Psalm 77. This is a psalm of Asaph, not a psalm of David, but Asaph was probably one of the leaders of the uh, Levitical choir, the kingly, or the, excuse me, the worshipful choir, and he wrote, uh, I don't know, 10 to 15 psalms, and this is one of them. But see, he served under both Solomon and David, and so he would have known the things that David was going through. And he tells us, what it is for us to do in faith as we've now put things in our lives that remind us of God's faith. And then when we get in a position where we're struggling or we feel like our faith is shaky or we're not, we don't have joy or, or anything like that that we're called to do, listen to what Asaph wrote. I think what he's saying is, Pull these things down and examine them again. Watch this. I cried out to God with my voice. What did he do first when he wasn't feeling great? You're going to read this. What did he do? He cried out. What, is the, what should be real quiet in prayer? Maybe, if that's what the Lord's directing you. But this one cried out to God. In other words, he didn't run around to other sources. He went to God in prayer when he was hurting. Prayer without a phone, without a movie, Without music on, well, I don't know, maybe, but you get what I'm saying. No distractions. He cried out to the Lord, and he gave ear to me, to the God with my voice, and he listened to me. Listen, in the day of my trouble, verse 2, Psalm 77, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night, watch this, without ceasing, continually. My soul refused to be comforted. I was really hurting. But then verse 3, watch. I remembered God, and I was troubled. I complained, and my spirit was overwhelmed. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I can't speak. You think this person is struggling? I've considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance, listen to this, I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart, and my spirit makes diligent search. I remembered the songs I used to sing when I was hurting before, and how the Lord delivered me. Are you catching that? It's the good deed. How about this? Verse 7, will the Lord cast all forever, and will he be favorable no more? Here it comes. Here it comes. Look what he pulled off the shelf 
of his life in the temple. He pulled off mercy. Has his mercy ceased forever? The answer is no. That's what he's saying. I'm going to examine God's mercy. Has his promise failed forevermore? The answer is no. He's, he's examining the promises of God. He's examining the mercy of God. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Of course not. Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? No. I go and examine those things. The stuff that I um, deserve that God is holding back from me, mercies, and he does it tenderly, and he's committed to it. I examine that, and I said, this is my anguish, verse 10, but I'll remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I'll remember the works of the Lord. Surely I'll remember your wonders of old. You see why I journal? How do you remember in your life what he's done. Of course, we know what he did for the Israelites all throughout the Old Testament. We know what he did at the cross, the greatest and best stuff, the greatest and best thing that could ever happen. He did at the cross, and you remember that. Remember those works of the Lord, but the Lord didn't just stop there. He's done works in your life because he has works for you to walk in, Ephesians 2.10, and he's doing something in you, and you're to remember those. You're to pull them off the shelf of the temple in your heart and remember the good works he's done in your life. And I'll meditate on all your work. Catch it. You won't just uh, skim by it. You'll meditate on what he's done and you'll remember it. And you'll talk of his deeds. You take those off the shelf and you, you talk of his deeds. Your way, O oh God, verse 13, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You're the God who does wonders. You've declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people. You think of redemption. You talk of redemption. The Bible tells us as New Testament, born-again Christians, that we were children of wrath, of the devil, And he purchased us back by his blood. He redeemed us. The waters saw you, verse 16, O God. The waters saw you and they were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The sky sent out a sound. Your arrows flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the earth. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea. Your path in the great waters and your footsteps were not known. You led your people by, uh, like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And I want you to see something here. What are we called to do? We're called to not only establish these things in our life, the things that uh, are faithful, faithful things in our life. We, we remember, we, we know what mercy is, we know what grace is, but we don't just gloss over it, we meditate on it. And when the tough times come, like this guy in uh, Psalm 77, guess what we do? We depend on them because he's the one that orchestrated it all and he's behind them and so we depend on him. He's done it in the past. He's promised it now. It'll happen in the future. See how wonderful that is? And so when we go back to 2 Kings 11, we see here that the priest in verse 10 gave the captain these hundred spears and shields which had belonged to King David that were in the temple of the Lord. Oh, by the way, folks, not only do we pull them off the shelf, so to speak, when we need it, but really what we're doing is remembering the Lord. We establish these things in our life, uh, these things of faith, these things of victory, these things that we remember and trust because he's the one we trust. You get it? But I want you to know something. 
To God, you're the ultimate trophy of his grace. How do I know it? Well, because I read Ephesians 2. Go with me there. And we all read Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. We love it. It's a famous verse. But sometimes maybe we forget Ephesians 2, 7. For the Christian, how about this? Is there anything better than this? This is speaking of a God, verse 4, who's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, verse 4, Ephesians 2. Verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse 7, don't miss it. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words, guess what happens in heaven? You get there, I get there. You're held up as a trophy of God's grace because of the kindness of Jesus Christ and his strength and his joy that was set before him going to the cross and giving you uh, an ability to come back to the Father. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, by the way, you see it show up a little bit more in the book of James. Go there, right at the end of James. Go there, I'll wait for you. Uh, You're going to want to see this. Not James, I'm saying James, but I mean Jude, sorry. The book of Jude, right before Revelation. The last two verses of the book of Jude. I say that because there's only one chapter. How about this? Talking of uh, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord, verse 21, Jesus Christ, uh, unto eternal life. But then in verse 24, listen to this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise. Are you catching this? Don't ever forget it. Don't ever forget it. What brings the Lord joy? Ushering you into the presence of the Father without blemish because of his blood that he spilled for us. You're his ultimate trophy of God's grace. So when you go back, uh, I hope verse 10 now has a different meaning for you. Uh, You'll never skip by it again. What a beautiful verse. Then the escort stood, verse 11, chapter uh, uh, 11, 2 Kings 11, verse 11. And what happened? The escort stood, every man with his weapons, all around the king, from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple, by the altar in the house. And he brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, and gave him the testimony. What's that talking about, by the way? Remember in Deuteronomy, every time a new king came on the scene, he was required to read the law, and not only just read it, he was required to write it out. Now, I don't know if this happened at seven years old, but certainly somebody, he was given this testimony, and they made him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, long live the king, popular support here. Verse 13, now when Athaliah, back to evil, heard the noise of the escorts and the people, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. Of course she did. What's going on, she wants to know. And in verse 14, when she looked, there was the king standing by a pillar according to custom. And the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king. All the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. So Athaliah tore her clothes and cried out, Treason, treason! Of course she did. She wants to stay on the throne. 
And Jehoiada, the priest, commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the army, and said to them, Take her outside under guard and slay with the sword whoever follows her. For the priest had said, Do not let her be killed in the house of the Lord. So they seized her, and she went by the way of the horse's entrance, or entrance into the king's house, and there she was killed. Vengeance was meted out, you see, against the house of Ahab. Well, then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord, the king, and the people. The Jews had renewed covenant before. Do you remember this? There was a first covenant with Abraham, but then the Jews had renewed a covenant with Moses in Deuteronomy 27 through 30. They'd renewed the covenant. And at Shechem, under Joshua, they had renewed the covenant. They'd done some, kind of got away from the Lord. A leader came on the scene and they renewed covenant. And then here we see it again. And we see what? What is he asking in the covenant in the Old Testament here? What's God asking for? God's asking for, for and from the people total commitment. Total commitment from his people. And see, folks, here's something that's beautiful. The Bible tells us that when I'm faithless, God remains faithful. You see, for the Christian... Jesus Christ made a new covenant in his blood called the covenant of grace, Matthew 26. Catch this, catch this. When we don't know whether we can give full commitment or not, our Lord and Savior already did. Full commitment. He was in the garden. He said, Father, could you take this cup for me? This is a cup that's This cup of wrath that's going to be poured out, Lord, or God, he says, Father. If there's any other way, and then he says this, but not my will, Lord, your Lord, your will, Lord, your will, Father, will be done. And he goes with total commitment. He pays with his life and his blood, but he didn't stay in the grave, and he rose again. But the point is, there's covenants all throughout the Bible God, Jesus made a covenant of grace. Jehoiada here in verse 17 of chapter 11 made a covenant between the Lord, the king, and the people. Total commitment that they should uh, be the Lord's people and also between the king and the people. And the people of the land went to the temple of Baal, tore it down. They thoroughly broke it in pieces, altars, images, and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. Then he took the captains of hundreds, the bodyguards, the escorts, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord and went by the way of the gate of the escorts to the king's house. Then he sat on the throne of the kings, and so all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they had slain Athaliah with the sword in the king's house. Jehoahash was seven years old, or Joash was seven years old when he became king. He was seven years old, but I want you to see two other things, and then I'm done. Here it is. The first thing is, notice, after they made covenant and they committed, there was a temple of Baal. Just a few chapters earlier, I don't know if you remember this, but when one of the kings came into power, he knocked down the temple that Ahab and Jezebel had established. But where had they established it? In the northern kingdom. Are you catching this? 
Through just a marriage with this evil Athaliah, she had established Baal temple worship in Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us as Christians not to walk in darkness. We can't have fellowship with God if we're walking in darkness. And one of the first things Joash does under, or with the help of Jehoiada is they go and they smash and wipe out idol worship. Or why, why is idol worship such a big thing? Because the Lord knows that the greatest and best and safest and most pure and most abundant and fruitful life you could ever have is tucked right underneath the shadow of his wings and not venturing out into these evil things and thus the Ten Commandments. Here's the other thing I want you to see, and then we're done. Are you catching this? Are you, are you, are you catching that these kingships... Throughout the Old Testament, these kingships in First and Second Kings, they prophesy or foretell about the greatest king, either by example or by a counterexample. And here, tucked away in Second Kings chapter 11, this shows Joash in a type of what our greater king was going to experience, Jesus. Joash, what happened to him at the beginning? He was hidden. Well, so was our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because King Herod was ready to destroy and so uh, destroy all the babies in the area because he was hearing of a king. He, so Jesus Christ went with his mom and dad as a little one and hid in Egypt. And eventually, he was revealed. He was, came onto the scene kind of all of a sudden. What, what happened? He was anointed, just like he was anointed. Joash was anointed. When was he anointed? Well, he was anointed in the Jor- Jordan River. And the Spirit uh, came down, and uh, this is my son, the Father said, in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus was revealed, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, just like uh, Joash was revealed. Well, we know this, this king's, the usurpation or being usurped, his kingdom was usurped by the evil one. And his, that, that fact, that history was avenged when Athaliah was killed. Well, how about this? Jesus Christ is coming back in judgment to set all things right. Well, another thing that, is, that happened, and I already talked about it, is there was a covenant made. There was a covenant made. Well, Christ made a covenant when he declared a new covenant signed by his blood, the covenant of grace. And finally, this, this young king was enthroned and sat upon the throne. And we know that Jesus, when he was finished at the cross, went rose again and sat down at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming again to judge and to set all things right. So what's this tell us as we close here? It tells us that we need a Savior, and the Savior is Jesus. And it was predicted all these years ago, and the kings show us that, here by this King Joash, this Second Kings 11. So if this was all planned out by the Lord under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and we're moving in the Old Testament towards the New Testament, we know that 
one of the things that the Old Testament really says, if you read it with honesty, is that man has a problem, sin, and God the Father's sending one who can rectify the problem, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so as we close here tonight, if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you've never given your life to the Lord, well, tonight's the night that you can do that. Salvation is today, for today. And what do you do? You admit you're a sinner. You recognize you're a sinner and you repent. You agree with God that you are that and you say, I'm turning towards the Lord and I'm going to count on his finished work at the cross and his resurrection for my salvation. Because the cross is where God poured out all of his justice and wrath on the sin of the world. The sins were imputed to Christ. God poured out his justice on his Son. And for those who trust in Jesus as their Savior, the blood covers us and we get robed with the righteousness, the garments of righteousness, so that we can now come back to the Father by the blood of the Son filled with the Holy Spirit. And if that's you, I'm going to pray here in a minute that you would come to know him in that real and saving way and give your life to the Lord. For those who are uh, uh, nervous and wondering uh, during this time, oh, don't you see how God has orchestrated all these things and he's not going to stop now. He's committed to his promises and his promises are that he's coming back for his bride. So do this with me. As the worshipers come and uh, lead us in uh, one more song uh, of worship, I'm going to pray with you. And um, if there's anybody that uh, wants to contact us, the contact information will be at the end of this video. So go ahead and send us an email or give us a call. Reach out to us. We'd love to talk with you. And just remember that God loves you so much through his son Jesus, and so do we. So pray with me. Well, Lord, we come together and we lift up this night, and we do. We recognize that there may be some here listening or watching or whatever, Lord, uh, on a podcast later who have never surrendered their life to you and uh, recognize, Lord, that they are sinners, just like we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. So, Lord, we pray with that one who says, Lord, I am a sinner and that I want to repent and move back to you, Lord, and come running back to you. And Lord, you be the Lord and Savior of my life as I count on your finished work at the cross and your resurrection. Lord, thank you for coming and filling, uh, filling me by your Spirit so that I can now walk with you and have eternal life. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.